What do you think of when you hear the word comeback? Well, if you're a sports fan, you hear the word comeback, you probably think about uh, your favorite team, maybe the time that they, they came back from uh, uh, seemingly insurmountable odds. You might think about the most recent Super Bowl. Wasn't that long ago we were watching the Super Bowl and Tom Brady and the Patriots came back in historic fashion. I think it was the greatest uh, comeback in Super Bowl history, at least according to the, the scoreboard, the number of points that they came back from. Uh, maybe you saw this in the news this week. Uh, Michael Phelps, the gold medal uh, Olympic swimmer of ours, announced that he is entertaining the thoughts of a comeback, uh, coming back to competitive swimming sometime soon, possibly. Uh, it, he just retired at the end of the 2016 Summer Olympics, so that was a really short-lived uh, retirement, but he's entertaining the thoughts of a comeback. Maybe you don't think about sports at all. Maybe you think more of like uh, your, your favorite recording artist, someone who's in the, the entertainment industry, someone like Garth Brooks, for instance, who has a comeback tour after years away from the limelight. Those sorts of comebacks aren't always welcome, though. Uh, in 2006, Barbara Streisand staged a 15-city comeback tour, and fans paid upwards of $12,000 to have backstage access to Barbara Streisand and to meet her and autographs and do the whole nine yards. And that was great, except for the fact that some of her fans threatened to file a class action lawsuit against Barbara Streisand because just six years earlier, they paid the same amount of money for her retirement tour in, two th in the year 2000, only to find out that it wasn't actually her uh, retirement at all. I guess the retirement tour just was a prelude to the, the comeback tour uh, that was to follow. So we love it when our favorite team rallies and, and comes back from this huge deficit. We, we love watching a, an athlete overcome the odds. We even love it when our, our favorite entertainers reinvent themselves. I bring all that up this morning, though, to ask you this. Have you ever wondered why we're so drawn to those, those comeback stories? You know, what, what is it about those that, that are, just makes those comebacks so fascinating to us? Are we drawn to those comebacks simply because they're, they're dramatic, because they're entertaining, because maybe they're inspiring at one level or another? Well, maybe. But have you ever considered that our fascination with those comebacks actually points us to something much deeper? That our, our infatuation with the comeback actually points us to what I believe to be the, the greatest comeback story of all, and that is the, the story of the death and the burial, but also the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we wind down this series on daring faith, we've been talking about the Gospel of John now for the past several weeks, and we'll, we'll wrap up officially next week with this series. But, but as we wind things down this morning, I, I want us to think about, think about the Gospel message and to think about in particular, the empty tomb, now that we have, have reached the point in John's gospel where the, we, we've reached the cross and we've reached the empty tomb, I want to challenge us to think about the gospel story as the greatest comeback of all. As John tells this gospel story, he makes it really clear that the forces of evil, those spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms, that they conspired to put Jesus on the cross. He says there, as Jesus is, is instituting this covenant meal that we just took part in, that Satan himself enters Judas, and, and that sets into motion the events that follow. So the arrest and the, the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, Satan is a major player in all of that. But as we said last week, none of that can happen without the consent of Jesus. 
Because John makes it equally clear that Jesus remains in control from start to finish. Nothing happens to Jesus in the Gospels that Jesus doesn't allow. So they can't come and arrest Jesus. They can't take him into custody. They can't nail him to the cross without his permission, without him willing it. Elsewhere in the New Testament says, For the joy set before him, Jesus Christ endured the cross, suffering its agony. So John tells this this gospel story, and he he points us there to that glorious Sunday morning, that resurrection morning when when the tomb was found empty and the victory of God was was fully revealed. And when we we look at that empty tomb, I want us to to think about that in terms of, of Jesus demonstrating the greatest comeback of all, because Jesus comes back from death. He comes back from the the, the forces of evil and all that they have thrown at him. He is victorious over sin. And and we remember that story. We remember what the gospel teaches there because it is history, because it is true. But we also remember the empty tomb because it is a promise to you and me. The empty tomb is a promise of spiritual comeback for us as well. For those who would dare to believe like we've been talking about all these past few weeks. So today in our time together, I'd like for us to look at at a few of these post-resurrection stories that John tells. It's John chapter 20 and John chapter 21. That's where we'll be. If you want to go ahead and and turn in your Bibles there, you can. We'll have the the verses here on the screen as as we always do. But but today I want us to, to look at the stories that John tells on the other side of the empty tomb. And today, let's think of these stories as comeback stories. And I think there will be a word here for us if we will just hear. John begins by telling the comeback story of Mary Magdalene. Now, we know from reading elsewhere in the Gospels that Mary has already experienced her own sort of spiritual comeback. Luke chapter 8, Luke tells us that Mary was, was possessed by seven demons. Yes, you heard that right. Seven demons. She's possessed by these seven demons until Jesus heals her. And so Mary already knows the great power of God that can bring you back from some very dark places. Mary has already experienced that in her life. And by the time we find her here in John chapter 20, she is at another low place. The sun has has just peaked. She is, is there with the other ladies at the empty tomb. And, and she finds the tomb empty, which is, is great news, is transformative news if you know what's happened. If you don't know what's happened, like Mary in this moment, she, she begins to think that, that something has happened, someone has come, they've removed the body, she thinks, you know, someone who's up to no good. And so she's distraught, she's torn, and in particular, her grief is just consuming her. And that's where we find her here as John begins this post-resurrection story, this comeback story, John chapter 20, starting in verse 14. At this, she, Mary, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, he calls her by name, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him in that moment, and she cries out, Rabbi, which Aramaic 
teacher. In this moment, Mary is so consumed with with grief and sorrow that I think it's fair to say that the tears in her eyes keep her from seeing Jesus. And sometimes in my life and in your life, the tears in our eyes can similarly keep us from seeing Jesus. It's not that she's lost sight of Jesus completely. It's not as if she's lost her faith. And it's not as if some of us here today have have lost our faith because of grief or sorrow. But, But it seems as if Mary is so overwhelmed with grief that all she can see is that tear in her eye. And And some of us, I imagine, as we gather here today, some of us may be experiencing the same same kind of thing. That the grief and the sorrow that we carry around with us might be so overwhelming that it is all we can see anymore. And maybe that grief is is fresh. Maybe it's because we've, we've come from a freshly dug grave. Maybe that grief and sorrow, we've been carrying it with us for for years or, or even for decades. But, but the bottom line is this, we, we know those times in our lives when for the tears in our eyes, we just can't, we can't see properly. I know how deep a well grief can run in, my, in your life. Some of you know as well. There's a recent study that was done. It was a, a brain imaging study conducted by some neuroscientists and what they were trying to test was they were trying to test the, the effects of grief and sorrow on brain activity. And one of the things that was so telling uh, came out of this, this recent study. The neuroscientists found that the same area of the brain that fires when a, a heroin addict has a fix, that same area of the brain fires in, among these these. these these case subjects who were heartbroken when they were shown a picture of their departed loved one. So you have the brain activity of of those who are heroin addicts being comparable to the brain activity of those who are deeply afflicted by sorrow and and grief. And for some of those case subjects, it it was grief because of death, because someone who had actually passed away and gone on for others it was they were grieving over the loss of a relationship a, a boyfriend girlfriend someone broke up with them but no matter the the brain activity there was so similar and the neuroscientists come away with this understanding that that we crave our loved ones much like the heroin addict craves his next fix and that just proves and demonstrates what what we already know to be true and that is grief and sorrow can be so incredibly powerful but mary's story teaches us a really important truth and that truth is this that with god's help you can come back from grief you can come back from sorrow and and one of the key ingredients in that kind of spiritual comeback is hope that hope is one of those essential ingredients to coming back from from spiritual grief and and sorrow. It's having something else to believe in. It's this hope of reunion someday. It's it's the hope, if a loved one has passed on, the hope of being reunited with them in eternity. Sometimes it's even just the, the blessing, the hope that comes from understanding that that loved one is not in pain any longer for those who have suffered with chronic pain for a long time. We say things like this, you know, well, at least 
at least they're in a better place or they're not hurting anymore. And we say it so much it can, it can lose some of its meaning, but that is an incredibly hopeful statement, isn't it? That's why we say it. And so hope, in essence, is really just this. Hope is, is the maintaining of an eternal perspective. The most hopeful people in your life and in my life are those people who maintain that eternal perspective. That means that they're able to view this loss and, and account for the fact that it hurts in the present, but also to understand it in light of eternity. The Word of God in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us that God has placed eternity. He has set eternity in the hearts of man. That means that God has given us some sort of awareness that there's more to life than just what we can see. That there's, there's something more than just this material world that we live in. That we ourselves are more than just carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and water and all those elements that make up our physical bodies. No, there is this sense, there's this awareness that there's something more to come. But when we lose sight of that, when we lose sight of that eternal perspective, that's where we lose hope. And the Word of God says to us as, as followers of Jesus, as people who place our, our trust in a story that ends with an empty tomb, the Word of God says you should not lose hope. I want you to hear this from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Word says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men, listen to this, who have no hope. No, he says, we believe that Jesus died. We're acknowledging the reality of the pain, the painful moment on Friday. We acknowledge that Jesus died and rose again. That, it makes all the difference, doesn't it? Because we acknowledge, yes, Jesus suffered. He suffered even when he didn't want to, when he prayed, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, I'm all ears. But he endured that and he rose again. We are a people of hope. That's why we don't have church on Friday, right? We meet on Sunday because Sunday is the day of hope. It's the day that his victory was won and the reign of God was declared over those spiritual forces of darkness that conspired to put Jesus on the cross. And so because of that, the word says we believe he rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That is a word of incredible hope, is it not? And so the, the key to this comeback, coming back from, from grief, coming back from sorrow, if maybe that's, that's where you find yourself and you, kind of like Mary, can, can relate to that and you feel like, you know, I'm just seeing the tears in my eyes more so than anything else, then, then hear this word of hope, the gospel, the empty tomb declares that we can come back from grief and sorrow. That's Mary's comeback story. And I hope it's yours as well. But that's just the first of these comeback stories. John tells another comeback story, and it is the, the comeback story of Thomas. We're still in John chapter 20. We're going to begin here in verse 24. You can skip down just a little bit there in your Bible. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he, he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked, an important eyewitness detail, right? Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. There is no locked door that can keep Jesus out from where he wants to be. 
The doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas says to him one of the strongest statements of faith in the entire New Testament. He says, My Lord and my God. It's easy to criticize Thomas for his lack of faith. But my heart goes out to him, partly because I spend a lot of time talking to people who have a lot of spiritual questions. I spend a lot of time talking to people for whom maybe, you know, this answer or this answer or this issue, you know, they, they, they struggle with figuring out exactly how to piece all that together. I talk to people who are honest with me about their spiritual doubts. Maybe they're all in on Jesus, but there are certain places in God's Word where they just don't understand, and and they ask these questions. And to be honest with you, my heart goes out to Thomas because I myself struggled with doubt, with certain things that I I try to figure out, okay, how does all this fit together? And from time to time in my own walk with Christ, I've been in much the same place. So, So today, maybe for you, maybe faith comes easily for you. And if that is the case, we praise God for that. But maybe for you, faith has never come quite as easily for you as it has for other people. And maybe there are certain questions, and maybe you would even say doubts. We don't talk about doubt a lot in church. It has a certain stigma to it. But maybe, you know, if we were just being honest, you would say, yeah, there are certain doubts that I have that I sort of carry around with me. And if that's the case, I just want to say a word specifically to you. I want you to know that in this place, we will not judge you. If you have questions and even some doubts and some things that don't quite all add up, it's not our place to heap condemnation upon you. I want you to know that we as a people take seriously the commands of our Lord, and and in the Word of God we are told this. We are told to have mercy on those who doubt, Jude verse 22. So we, we plan on being faithful to that. So for those of you who have those kinds of questions and and, and even doubts, I want you to know you're not strange. You're not weird for having questions. You're not not unwelcome here if you have certain things that you're kind of curious about. In fact, I think, at least in my experience, there have been a lot of times where those questions and the pursuit of those answers and the dialogue that that brings about, it's oftentimes the, the prelude to a great spiritual breakthrough what i love about thomas's comeback story is that it takes place within the context of christian community that thomas is surrounded by brothers and sisters in christ he's surrounded by fellow disciples and he knows that if he's surrounded by them that if he is in that kind of community that that is a safe place for him to ask his questions that he is in the, in the context of a safe place where he can, can raise his doubts, where he can talk about that, and he knows he's not going to be cast out. Remember, again, the doors are locked, and the disciples are fearful. I think they're fearful because they're, they're worried that the same thing that happened to Jesus is about to happen to them, but they don't kick Thomas out before they lock the door. They don't say, hey, buddy, if you're not down with this, if you don't agree with us on this exact thing, then you need to get out of here. No, they allow Thomas to be in their midst and to continue to ask his questions and to continue to work all of this out within the confines of a Christian community. So let me ask you this. In your experience, has church been the kind of place where spiritual questions and doubts are welcome? 
A lot of the people that I talk to, I think they would say no. So something has apparently changed from Thomas's day to ours because Thomas is welcome to say, this doesn't make sense to me. I'm not, sure I'm, I'm not sure I'm quite there yet. He's welcome to work that out in the context of a Christian community and fellow disciples, and he doesn't fear that they're going to run him out before they lock the door. And if we're going to be a New Testament church, we need to be the kind of place that welcomes heartfelt questions and honest dialogue, because that is one of the keys to overcoming, to coming back from doubt. At least one of the the key ingredients there as well is is this. It's humility. Uh, Thomas is is so humbled when he sees Jesus, isn't he? He is so humbled that he makes perhaps the strongest statement about the identity of Jesus that you're going to find on the pages of the New Testament. It's a shame that he's remembered as doubting Thomas because he then turns on a dime and he says, my Lord and my God, that is a powerful statement about the identity of Jesus. But, it, but he reaches that place of, of humility. And, and sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes our doubts are the result of a, a prideful reliance on our own understanding. Sometimes that's where our doubts stem from. So my prayer for those of us who maybe are struggling with, with doubt, if we're trying to come back from from some nagging, lingering sort of questions. My, my, my prayer is that we would, would have the humility, that we would have, have the honesty to ask those questions, but that we would also have the humility to, to try and live in light of what, what the wisdom of Proverbs 3 says, which is trust in the Lord with all your heart. That idea of, tr- of having daring faith, as we've been saying now for weeks, it's about trusting God. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That's Thomas's story story of coming back from doubt and the final comeback story that john tells here in his gospel is the comeback of simon peter Uh, jesus in john chapter 21 he appears to his disciples at the sea of galilee simon has, has gone out he's gone fishing he's taken a few of the disciples with him there's the miraculous catch of 153 fish again another eyewitness detail 153 fish and jesus and the disciples they share breakfast together which is just a fascinating thing to to kind of think about but jesus has some unfinished business with simon peter and that's where john closes out his gospel story john chapter 21 starting in verse 15 when they had finished eating jesus said to simon peter simon son of john do you truly love me more than these Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter, note this, listen, Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you were old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. 
Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. What is your greatest spiritual failure? What is the, the moment in your life, the moment in the rearview mirror, where you, you look back to that moment and you feel such guilt and such shame and such regret? What would be your greatest spiritual failure? Those are difficult questions, I know. Simon Peter's greatest spiritual failure was that moment when he denied Jesus. Three times he, he denied publicly that he was not a follower of Jesus. Declared that he didn't even know the man. And, and for, for emphasis, to be sort of emphatic, he punctuates that last time of denial with a, a little bit of swearing, a little bit of cursing. I don't know him, Simon Peter says. And just hours before, he'd been the one standing up saying, I don't care what everybody else does, Lord. I will never forsake you. I will die for you. And then when the moment of truth came, Peter fails. And we've all been there. Everyone experiences spiritual failure from time to time. No one's spiritual life is an unbroken series of victories. That is just not the way it works. And Simon Peter's story illustrates that. It paints this this picture. We get a pretty unvarnished view of what a complete spiritual meltdown is looks like this is his great spiritual failure and and like us when when peter thought back to that moment he was racked with guilt just like when i ask you that question your great spiritual failure and there's something that kind of starts rising to the top we start to feel it and we want to press that down we want to push that away because it doesn't feel great and just like simon peter we too are kind of racked with guilt here but but as we said from the outset these stories our comeback stories. And so we find here Jesus leading Simon Peter into the comeback from guilt. And he is, he is putting Simon Peter in this narrative. He is putting him back together just as thoroughly as he fell apart. Three times, do you love me? And three times, Simon Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And why would Jesus ask Simon Peter that question three times. I think it has everything to do with the fact that Simon Peter denied Jesus three times. Because he is saying to Simon Peter, this is the full dimension, the holistic nature of the way in which I want to build you back up. Jesus asks Simon Peter the single most important question when it comes to spiritual failure, and that is this, do you love me? When it comes to our spiritual failure, the most important question is this. Do you love Jesus? When you experience that spiritual failure and you're trying to put the pieces back together, that's when we get back to first things first, okay? So first base is, do you love Jesus? And the answer to that will determine everything. It'll determine whether or not we come back from spiritual failure. It'll determine whether or not we can come back from guilt and regret and shame. Because Simon Peter answers, answers that question in the affirmative. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And that answer makes all the difference. Not just in this gospel story, but in the rest of that man's life. And to the same degree, when you and I are facing spiritual failure and we're trying to pick the pieces back up and, and God wants to lead us through that, first base is, okay, do you still love me? 
Are you still all in on this Jesus thing? Are you still willing to commit yourself, heart, soul, mind, and body, to loving him as your Lord? And as Thomas says, your God. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And that answer makes all the difference for us, just as it makes all the difference for Simon Peter. You see, despite his enormous failure, Simon Peter continues to love Jesus. And I bet you can relate to that. Despite his failure, he still loves Jesus. And because he still loves Jesus, the Lord says something else to him three times. Did you notice? He says, feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Basically, I I still have work for you to do, Peter. And and if you think you're getting off the hook here, you're not. Because I'm I'm even going to tell you about the manner in which you're going to die. You're young now, but one day you're going to be really old because you're going to serve me for a long, long time. And somebody's going to lead you where you don't want to go. And that's the way you are going to leave this world. I'm not done with you yet, Simon Peter. You see, Simon falls into the same trap we fall into sometimes. He thinks because of his spiritual failure that God must be done with him. That because of his spiritual failure, he has lost his place in the kingdom and that he has lost his vocation, his ability to serve in the kingdom. What do you find Simon Peter doing at the very beginning of this story? He's gone back to the boat, right? He's back fishing. He's got the nets. He's back on the water. He's gone back to an old way of life. And how many times does that happen? One spiritual failure causes me to rush headlong back into an old identity, or to an old behavior. I mess up once and I think, well, God must be done with me. So I guess there's nothing else for me to do but to go and embrace this old identity. How many times does that happen? But Jesus sees it so differently. When Jesus looks at Simon Peter, and yes, he acknowledges those spiritual failings. But what Jesus wants to do is to heal Simon and to build him back up and to make him a more effective vessel for kingdom service. Because Jesus understands this, that when we come back from spiritual failure, we become even greater forces for the kingdom. This is not a pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps sort of thing, no. But when we allow God to bring us back from spiritual failure, that's the key. And so as Jesus talks here with Simon, all of that old bravado and that old Simon, it just seems to sort of fade away and melt away. Even though he's trying, he's out on the boat, he's trying to go back, there's just, it kind of melts away. Because prior to, to all of this, a lot of times you see Simon, he comes across as kind of brash, kind of arrogant, kind of boastful. But here, he is none of those things. He is broken. He has these spiritual scars. And those spiritual scars, through the grace of God, are actually going to make him a more effective servant of Jesus Christ. He will be a more effective shepherd over the flock because of those spiritual scars. So far from disqualifying him from kingdom service, no, those spiritual scars through the grace of God actually allow Simon Peter to minister out of that failure. The failure need not define him any longer, but it makes him a more effective minister and shepherd others so again i would ask you what is your greatest spiritual failure what are those those moments or that that one thing from your past that it causes the greatest amount of guilt to, to well up inside of you whatever it is just know this you can come back from guilt you can come back from shame you can come back from regret 
And there are two key ingredients in that kind of comeback. And one of those ingredients is totally dependent upon you and me. And one of those ingredients is totally dependent upon God. The, 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 the one ingredient that is totally dependent upon you and me to come back from guilt and from spiritual failure, that one key ingredient is repentance. Just, just good old-fashioned gospel repentance. It is contrition. It is brokenness. It is, God, I am sorry for what I have done. I have hurt you, and I have hurt other people, and I'm sorry. That's, that's where we begin. That's, that's the first step in coming back from your guilt and from your shame and from whatever regrets you have in the past, it begins there with that place of, of brokenness. But know this too, without repentance, without repentance, that wound never becomes a spiritual scar. Without repentance, that, that wound just remains a festering wound. But with repentance, that wound begins to heal. And with repentance, that wound becomes a scar. And out of that scar, you can minister effectively. But the key, where it begins, first base repentance and you need to know this too that repentance hurts real repentance man it's tough it hurts hurts to admit you're sorry it hurts to admit that you've hurt someone else It, it hurts to admit that you have hurt the heart of god did you notice what it says there simon peter was hurt that Jesus kept asking him, do you love me? You may find another one in the Bible, if so, tell me. But as far as I can tell, that is the only place in Scripture where it says that Jesus intentionally hurt somebody. And he did it because that pain was worth it. He did it to break Simon Peter and to get him to that place where he could pick the pieces back up together, to lead him in this great spiritual comeback out of the land of guilt and shame transform him into something else but it begins with repentance and repentance hurts so that's the first ingredient the second ingredient that in this comeback from guilt the second thing and this is totally the work of god what's required for us to be able to come back from guilt and shame and regret and sin it's grace it's the amazing grace of god that we just sang about a few minutes ago And that ingredient is totally and completely dependent upon God. And thankfully, he says that that grace is offered in abundance whenever we come to him in repentance. John has already told us at the outset of his gospel, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The grace of God is available in its fullness to, to, to free us, to help us come back from guilt and shame. We might come back from all of these things we've talked about today. So the question as we close is this, is your story a comeback story? It can be. It can be for those who would place their trust in this gospel story that John is telling that has been preserved through the ages and brought to us today. The empty tomb declares that the greatest comeback of all is possible for those who would dare to believe. We're about to stand and sing a song together. As we do, you'll see some of the shepherds of this church throughout the room, in the balcony and down front here and in the back. If there's anything in your life that you would just love to to talk with them about privately and quietly,
please seek them out. That's why they make themselves available during this time. Maybe there's some things that you want to share with this body publicly that we can be praying about, that we could be encouraging you in. But maybe today, for the first time ever, you need to really repent. Maybe you want to come back from guilt and you want to confess the good name of Jesus Christ and you want to walk into the waters of baptism and be made new, to have your sin washed away and to become something redeemed and holy and transformed. If that needs to happen, we would love to to, to, to just experience that with you, to encourage you. I can only imagine what, what that is like on the streets of heaven. If that needs to happen, my prayer is that it would happen right now. Let's stand together and let's sing our song of invitation. I can hear